Welcome to Thriving the Future podcast, where we're finding positive solutions to thrive in the tough times ahead. Okay, welcome back to Thrive in the Future. This week, I have Jason Snyder joining me. So Jason, your Twitter profile says you're meta-modern localist, focusing on meditation, homesteading, regenerative food systems, and then bioregionalism. That's a lot to unpack. Let's dive into it a little bit more. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> that first term I just kind of made up. Uh, <laughs> you know, metamodernism is is a whole kind of set of cultural theories, but basically it's it's kind of saying we need to move beyond postmodernism. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily reject it. Uh, postmodernism kind of played the role of deconstructing grand narratives that maybe were not no longer serving us, but you can't stay in this kind of deconstructive mode forever so we have to move forward with something constructive um taking you know kind of you know re reconstructing meaning in our lives and in our society so that that's that's all that i really mean by that great and yeah localist is just you know i i, I tend to think that more tangible tangibility we can bring into our lives mm-hmm. in terms of our relationship to our, our food to our families uh to our communities the better off we'll be sure. so yeah, so that's that's that first term. Uh, do you want me to go through each of those? No, things? we can we can dive into them a little bit more. So, so yeah. I like your picture. Is that a picture of your homestead in the banner on Twitter? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a it's the the picture got kind of bent or distorted, and, and right. there's a rainbow in the picture, and it just I, I liked it, it seemed kind of a surrealist kind of scene. So uh, it is. Um, it's not all of it, of course, but it's it's just kind of. Yes, it's a picture that I liked. What's your setup on your homestead like? So we're uh, just entering into our fourth year now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we bought the home as is, so we didn't build the home. So far, I mean, the first couple of years was really kind of getting the basics. So getting a, a garden established, getting layer hens established, planting a lot of trees, especially fruit and nut trees, starting to dig a pond, things of that nature. And, and, and these days kind of branching out, you know, fun little projects like like building a tree house and um, just built a chicken tractor and going to get meat hens, uh, meat chickens this year. Um, so that's kind of what I'm doing now. We're on, we're on about five acres. I uh, eventually want to get sheep or goats, do some rotational grazing as the trees grow, eventually silvo pasture, like grazing these animals, you know, through the trees and stuff. So So that's kind of where where I'm headed. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So what's your favorite thing you grow there? What's your cornerstone crop or tree? Yeah, well, the trees are still young. And mm-hmm. so I see that as kind of a longer term investment. So I'm not getting much from the trees yet. Um, sure. You know, potatoes are are great, right? As a as a kind of a staple, you know, I still have tons of potatoes in the in the basement. Uh, you know, I, I think that's kind of like a major staple crop, but then some other staples are like corn and experience, starting to experiment with sorghum, beans, stuff like that. And then I love tomatoes. You know, I, we love making sauces. You know, our family love making salsa and, and tomato sauce. And and we just grow, I mean, a lot of different things, you know, a lot of just kind of look through all the different crops that do well where we are. So we're in kind of Western North Carolina in the Appalachians, zone 6AB. And so Oh. We've just been trying different crops, you know, like I think we started basically trying to grow everything. And and now it's a matter of like 
narrowing down, you know, which crops do really do well here, which, which do we like? Um, mm. well, of course, all of the greens, you know, uh, as well as, you know, squash and most other things you can think of for this region. Great. That sounds good. Yeah. Are you growing chestnuts or anything with, you said nuts? Yeah. Trees? Yeah. So I, we have, I have like 18 chestnut trees in the ground, the Chinese chestnut trees. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to, like to see if I can get one of those American hybrids at some point or a few of those, but yeah, those are still small trees though, right? They're, they're maybe like two to five feet high. So that's going to be a long, a long time before those come to maturity. Sure. I have chestnuts and hazel, a lot of apples. I had my first apple crop this year that on five year trees. So, mm-hmm. and they were Arkansas black. I was just okay. about to cut the tree down because it had, it has really bad cedar apple rust. And then okay. I was like, Hey, wait, this has got apples on it. <laughs> right. Because- right. Yeah. We, we got some of our first apples this year too. I think it was a Grimes, two Grimes golden apple trees oh, yeah. apples this last year. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's it's exciting. It was like the first time besides like berries and stuff that those produced. Sure. Yeah. I like what you pin tweet. New virus coming, plant trees, cultivate garden and tend livestock. Supply mm-hmm. chain shocks, plant trees, cultivate garden and tend livestock. Climate change, do the same. New war coming, plant trees, cultivate garden and live, tend livestock. Yeah. It's a yeah. solution. The the world is so complex and there's so many things, shocks that I feel like are, are coming down the line. And my attitude is just most of what you can do is focus on the basics, mm-hmm. right? Just keep developing your sovereignty, right? Personal, family, as well as, you know, neighborhood community sovereignty. And the, the chips will fall where they will. But in the meantime, I'm not going to be worrying about all of these intangibles. Uh, I'm going to be... Sure planting trees, uh, cultivating garden, ten livestock. Yep. One of the things that kicked off this conversation was your recent tweet about, I don't like the narrative of modern day homesteading and localism where it's a form of retreat or disengagement from, from societal concerns. Yeah. Well, so I guess what I'm not saying uh, is that it's, think it is good to build up resilience, you know, mm-hmm. uh, nested scales. But I, it seems like there's a narrative both seeing this as a positive and negative of like a positive of like, okay, society isn't going well for various right. reasons. And so we're going to retreat and form our little paradise. Sure. And I kind of think that at the end of the day, there's only so, so there's only so far that'll take you, right? If, mm-hmm. if things really went to hell. Um, so I kind of think it's a little bit wishful thinking. Uh, and on the negative side of like, oh, you're just retreating, you know, you're, you're it's kind of, Selfish. I, I just think that's kind of a cope. Uh, I, I just think that it's actually a much healthier lifestyle uh, to engage with, and so uh, and so. I think both kind of the positive and negative valence of, of retreat. I, I just don't. I just don't like it as a, as, a, as a framing. So I prefer to. You know, I, I generally think that it's just a better way to live in general. It's inherently satisfying. It's inherently meaningful. It's healthier, and I just think that. Society would be better off if a lot more people were to engage in things like home food production, as well as just relearning the basics of how to build things, right? How to fix things, how to build community. And and so I, th- I see it more as, I use the term, a prefiguration of a better society down the road if, if this kind of 
movement of I would call neo homesteading or neo localism because it's a lot like a lot of people left the land in the mid 20th century, right? And now it seems like there's rising interest in returning back to the land. And so if it spreads in kind of this broad scale manner, I actually think the society that would come out of that, that would emerge out of that would would be, you know, a healthier society. So, sure. so yeah, so I, to me, retreat is, is just kind of, for me, the wrong framing. It's setting the groundwork for, you know, something better in the future. Sure. So I'm in Northeast Kansas, West of Kansas city. We really struggle in this area about a lot of the homesteaders are also have that retreat prepper mindset. Yeah. And then for example, like if we have a old, old timey uh, apple press for making mm-hmm. apple cider, then do we share this or everybody wants to get their own? <laughs> right. I want my own. And then everybody seems to be building their, their compound instead of forming community. And then what, what does community look like in that situation? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's been a little bit of a challenge just because that whole mindset is baked in there. I'm going to have my own yeah. stuff and uh, and things like that. So we've overcome that a little bit by getting together and doing workshops. Mm-hmm. And at first we were we were stuck with this. Well, you know, I'm not an expert. You're not an expert. Hey, but let's figure it out. And then we'll get together and we have straight run chicks. So most, you know, one guy had like almost 75% of his chickens ended up being roosters several times gone over and uh, had a workshop where we process chickens. And mm-hmm. if you don't know how to do it, then we'll, we'll, we'll learn together. Yeah. So it's sort of like, uh, we're not an expert, we're, but we're still going to get stuff done. Yeah. No, I, I just think that's, uh, it's a healthier approach, but I also think it's a more resilient approach as well. Humans, like, like one of the, I think the, one of the reasons that humans and the human species spread out around the world as they did was that they were able to cooperate in these small bands, right? And get stuff done, right? That's how they were able to take down the megafauna, for example, right? Uh, We could say that that was a a tragedy that, you know, at least in the Americas, you know, humans took down the megafauna, but that's how they did it. They didn't do it alone. They did it in groups coordinating with each other. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in kind of means matching ends, right? So if, what you're doing in the short term to get somewhere in the long term safe, say the the goal is safety in the long term, but in the short term, you're you're kind of like not cultivating healthy attitudes and you know pro social attitudes. Then I, I just think that um, you're kind of undermining your long term goal anyway. Right. Um, and, and yeah, um, it's good to it's good to cooperate. It's good to learn from each other. Like like you said. Nobody knows everything. Nobody has all of the capacities and resources that everybody else. And so, you know, you can you can each help each other figure stuff out. I, that's cool that you mentioned the, the the chicken butchering workshop. I'm actually hoping to host one of those in April because I'm just getting I'm getting the meat hens in April and hopefully hold the workshop late June, mm-hmm. early July, something. Uh, and I've you know done a little bit of chicken butchering before, but not not on this scale. And so it'll be really nice to just have friends from around the region, you know, some of whom have more experience with this, you know, help out. Right. And, and just last weekend, a few of us went to a friend's house. He, he has a, like a farmstead and he had this, he, he came onto the property with this old dilapidated trailer hmm. and that just needed to be taken, taken down. So, so that uh, he wants to build a barn and a workshop there. And so we just, you know, a few of us came over and 
basically helped helped him demolish most of it the day, right? Which is something that he he couldn't have really it would have been hard for him to do himself. It would right. have been taxing, but all together, you know, cracking open some beers and you know, uh, hammering at drywall, you know, it was a fun day. And that's awesome. I just think that's that's the way. It was like a mobile home trailer and and then you tore it yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. It was on a foundation of of cement blocks, but yeah, oh, okay. it was basically mobile. But it was like a, a, a long, I, I don't know the exact name of it, it was one of the really long ones. Sure. Yeah. And it was, you know, and it was fun, right? That that seems like one of those things where it's a dirty job, you know, uh, but when you're getting together with friends and you have music playing and, you know, drinking beers and joking, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just a fun day and it's bonding and, you know, it, it, it becomes something that's attractive to do. Right. And so, you know, that's part of it too, is like, how do we do these bigger projects that one, we probably, it's hard to do alone, but two, you know, to get over just the motivation to do it, um, mm-hmm. you know, with the, with the crew, then it's, you know, I think it makes it a lot easier on everybody. And then everyone's building skills. Everybody's learning things. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to, it's about time for a seed swap and yeah. it, it's hilarious because we'll get together and then grown men are like, Ooh, wow. You got that. Can I have some of that? Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's right. like in the candy store and, and yeah. uh, I can't grow squash for the life of me here. You know, the squash bugs just descend. So that's where community can come in again and say, Hey, you know, I'll grow this. If you can grow squash and then we'll trade. Yeah. And stuff like that. And then uh, that's something I'm really looking forward to do. Cause I'm on like year three or four where I've had a complete squash failure. Nice. And so is your, your friend that you're trading with, they're not so close by that the, the squash bugs descend there too. There's like um, there's something particular about the, the landscape where you are. I think some of it might be the wood chips and the compost that I bring in. Okay. I probably brought yeah. it in with that. Yeah. They're, they're not really close, but uh, they don't, they don't seem to have the same kind of problems. Yeah. I, I even tried a local land race variety and it still didn't help. Yeah. That's yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly it. Um, right. Like the friend that we helped demolish the place, you know, he, him and his wife, you know, they have, goats and sheep and used to have a couple donkeys and they got rid of them ducks and and so like basically whenever i get into these larger livestock you know i have somebody to answer all my questions right and not somebody who i'm like you know cold calling but somebody who's a good friend and Mm -hmm. you know knowing knowing that when the time comes and he can help me get the setup going and everything that's great that's awesome yeah Cool. And then you also are on Doomer Optimism podcast. So what's a Doomer Optimist? <laughs> yeah, that's just a term that um, uh, the the account Rhizoma School, uh, Ashley Colby, she coined that term. I mean, we were in conversation. Uh, basically, the sense the sensibility that, you know, we, we both uh, were critiquing this kind of naive optimism that you especially see, I think, in like, Silicon Valley kind of tech bro culture where, you know, they're just obscenely optimistic uh, in in my view. Like, and uh, I don't think optimism is bad, but I, but I think that um, your optimism has to be grounded in pragmatism has to be grounded in in some cold, hard truths about reality. And so Doomer optimism is kind of like first, you know, acknowledge reality as it is, you know, without wishful thinking, uh, come to terms with it, you know, and, and once you do that, 
then you know you can afford to to be optimistic to be hopeful uh but you know it, hopefully that that will be expressed in a in a pragmatic way you know in a way that's not 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 with rose colored glasses or or hopium or something like that and so that right. that's really kind of the sensibility that we kind of gravitated towards um you know and then we just started recording stuff and that eventually you know with on other platforms and then we eventually just with some other folks developed a podcast and that's been going on for about a, a year and a half now and yeah it's been fun met a lot of people um and you know built a pretty nice network this way yeah, yeah. i like uh, i'm a real big survive in the future lean logic yeah. John Michael Greer fan, all that. Um, and then that I was really surprised by the focus on localism, the fact that try as they might that uh, without getting into to politics here, you know, try as they might, the technocrats, mm -hmm. it'll have to fail. There's just no way that it can handle. And then the local folks will have to pick it up and mm -hmm. help each other out. And that's actually the transition step that they have in uh, Surviving the Future book. And I did a spin on it for the title of the podcast here. You know, <laughs> I think I think our our influences are, you know, we have a lot of common influences. Um, John Michael Greer, uh, he's definitely been influential in a lot of our space as well. We actually had him on the podcast a while back, which was really, which was really exciting. Um, you know, another another person that that has a big influence on our space is Wendell Berry. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's. Uh, and and yeah, I mean that's I think I don't know if I have even anything to add to what you said. You know, I think that describes our sensibility uh, well. Is that you know we just think that larger scale systems, especially ones that people are trying to exert this kind of top down control, like they don't really understand the nature of complex systems in general and the fact that you can't really control complex systems without causing more harm than generally intended. And so. Sure. For us, it's like, okay, well, we, we kind of see a lot of challenges in the world and, and you know, uh, we probably shouldn't rely on, you know, kind of mainstream life support systems 100%. I mean, we can't get away from them either. Right. So we should think about grounding ourselves, right? And And so, you know, there's both a kind of incentive there of like, you know, being more resilient, but there's also, again, a realization that I think a lot of people have that you know, this is actually a really satisfying way to live, right? And so it's it's both kind of, you know, I, I don't want to say defensive action, but, you know, it's it's it's, it's being resilient, but, but it's also like, wow, we've actually, in, in our culture, we've forgotten a lot of the values of rich agrarian cultures in general. And, and so mm -hmm. a lot of us are having to kind of rediscover it from the ground up. You know, there's still a lot of old timers uh, that we connect with, and oftentimes they make fun of the the, the newbies, the newcomers, Right. Because, you know, many of us don't really know what we're doing at the beginning, uh, but we're trying to have to like, or, or you know, basically start over uh, in, in many ways. Because speaking for myself, you know, I didn't grow up really connected to the land. You know, I, I, I didn't really grow up knowing where food came from in, in a very specific sense. Sure. Um, and I moved around, you know, a few times growing up and, you know, I, and for a while I thought of myself as like, well, you know, my identity is not really tied to place. And, you know, and I saw that in a positive light. I was like, I could be anywhere, do anything. Um, but that that gets tiring after a while. And you start feeling that void after a while. And so mm -hmm. I think for me, coming to this region three or four years ago was an opportunity to decide, okay, like, 
I'm going to stay here uh, or do everything in my power to stay here. And, you know, I want to start building a legacy um, mm-hmm. that I can pass on to future generations and, you know, actually be a meaningful long-term presence in this area. What are some of the steps we can do to get a little bit more uh, localist or, you know, embrace localism? Uh, it really depends on, on, on your situation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you can also be a localist in a city, I, I want to say. Sure. Um, you know, I think, you know, some cities have very strong kind of neighborhood identities. So localism is not not necessarily agrarian. I, I think, one, I think it's connecting somehow back with the land. I think that's that's pretty important. Um, and in some in some way, getting involved with food production, uh, mm-hmm. whatever that means for you, right? Even if it's in a city or an apartment complex, you know, you can start growing things in five gallon buckets, right? You can uh, you can see if there's like a community garden around or something like that. Um, so I think it's also thinking long term. Uh, I, I think it's it's thinking in terms of generations, not just uh, what am I going to do in the next six months. Uh, right. It's thinking where do I, where am I, where do I want to be? You know, if you have a lot of family in a place, that's a pretty good candidate, I think, for a lot of people to like stay there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Multi generational family is important, but if I if I devote myself to a place. And, you know, I, I want to improve this place, then, you know, in order to do that, I have to be there for, I have to spend some time there. I have to get to know it. I have to become aware of the people, you know, I have to develop strong relationships. I have to understand the local ecology. And you can only do that if you're, I think if you're localized, right? The density of connections to really, I think, make a difference in a place, um, is a localist ethos of developing these density of connections. Um, and it's easiest to do that when they're tangible, right? Mm-hmm. When, you, uh, of course, we're talking over the internet. I'm also, you know, I think internet networks and stuff are cool as well. Um, and that can be a kind of complement to localism. Uh, sometimes I call that Cosmo localism. It's not my term, but uh, where you're developing a relationship to a place and a people, uh, but you're also connecting with people in other regions in other parts of the country or other parts of the world and trading, trading experiences, right? You might have some insight of, you know, how people are doing things somewhere else and it might not exactly apply to where you are, but you can adapt it to your place. And so, sure. yeah, taking community seriously, taking, taking the land, uh, your relationship to the land seriously, I think would, would, be, would be my nutshell version. Yeah, you were talking about local ecology. One of the main challenges and and uphill battles that I've had is that the stuff that works that you read about that Ben Falk is doing or Mark Shepard are doing don't work in Kansas. (laughs) So we don't have April showers, bring May flowers. We have May, late May and early June thunderstorms and then drought in between or something. And so the stun method I learned the hard way doesn't work on uh, grafted apples, <laughs> which he, right. he says don't work on gra- grafted apples. They work on things you plant from seed. But, you know, in my zeal, I didn't completely realize that and had to kill off a whole bunch of them. So yeah. until I dug some swales and, and some mounds, and then they <laughs> seem to be doing better with that. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's part of localism too, is, you know, it takes a while to understand the particular particulars of your place. And if, of course, if you're raised in a place, you know, and you have multi-generations in the same place, 
then you have that kind of cultural knowledge that's passed down. And that's extremely valuable. And most of us, or many of us, uh, either deliberately cut ourselves off from that at a certain point, or it was already cut off in our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation. I get a lot of insight from, say, the permaculture principles and and seeing what a lot of these guys are doing. But as you mentioned, every place is different and you have to adapt. Uh, I mean, that is a permaculture principle to observe and adapt. And But you can only do that if you're moving every two years, you're never going to, you know, unlock the secrets of the place to be able That's to really true. thrive there. Especially if it takes five years plus to get an apple. Yeah, that's definitely true. I think chestnuts, you know, that, that's like a 10-year investment. And then that's, I, I feel like, well, I'm kind of sad that I didn't grow up in a place where my great-grandparents grew, you know, an orchard. And I'm jealous of people who's who's did. I could come to the realization that, hey, I could be that grandparent, right? Um, I could plant those orchards. Um, sure. You know, I could be part of my legacy. Mm-hmm. Um and again, that's that's already assuming, though, that I'm going to be here for a long time. And my hope is that my kids will want to stay around, too. Maybe they'll go off for a while and do something else, but there will be something really attractive for them to come back to and, and to continue. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I got my first uh, one chestnut on my first tree this year. <laughs> wow. Okay. How, how long have you been in the ground? Um, I, think, I think I got them when they were two-year seedlings. And then they've been in the ground for five years. So yeah, they're about six or seven years old. And then uh, I, I had one burr and one small chestnut in that burr. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. So I, yeah, my first generation of them have been in the ground for about three years now. So mm-hmm. I've got about three more years before I get my first. Yeah. They didn't really take off until they got to about three years. And then all of a sudden they just went wild and started yeah. growing like crazy. So and part of it is because when you dig them up to transplant them, it's real easy to damage the tap root. Right. And so, you know, I'm growing them out in a bed like uh, the twisted tree farm guy up in upstate New York. And then when I pop them out, I almost always cause some sort of damage to the tap root. And then they just don't thrive after that. So right. I, I started uh, growing them in tree pots and then doing it that way instead. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Nice. Nice. Yeah. My friend uh, planted Chinese chestnuts down at the elementary school like seven, eight years ago. It must be longer than that because they're pretty big. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to have chestnuts roasting by the open fire. I'm going to show these kids how they work. And then the school said, no, we're not doing any of that. Allergies allergies, insurance, all this stuff. And Yeah. And and now they're pretty much neglected. So I just go down there and pick up the chestnuts and then put them in a bucket of sand and sprout them out. <laughs> nice. Nice. And, and yeah. then plant them. Yeah. We, we recently just interviewed a guy who is, you know, one of his big passions is just starting foraging for various nuts, various nut trees and, and just planting oh, wow. them. And he doesn't even have that much space on his land. He just, he just like gives them away, but he's just mm-hmm. like, you know, we need to propagate these things, right? The more, the more food that's just kind of hanging around that's just passively growing, the better. Yeah. So you still have potatoes in the basement in March. How do you store them so that they don't just turn into big sprouts and, and eyes and stuff? Yeah. Well, uh, honestly, I, I, no, nothing special. They're just they're just laying in the basement on some cardboard. I mean, yeah. some of them are getting a little shriveled up for mm-hmm. sure. I mean, so... I mean, I can still eat. I don't really mind eating potatoes that are a little shriveled up. 
it's fine. You know, I'll just cut them up and fry them anyway. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, a few of them, you know, are probably beyond doing that. But yeah, I mean, they'll last me for an another few months. You know, I, I think they'll probably last me until until I get my next harvest. Uh, I'll probably replant. I'll probably use a lot of them for replanting. The ones that are really shriveled up and growing, you know, growing the, the eyes and stuff, I'll just throw them in the ground. You'll use them as seed potatoes then, right? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're getting yeah, into I mean, the... I like the point. Like I usually just buy them at the farm store, the seed potatoes, but I'd like sure. to get to a point where I produce enough that I, I just keep replanting my own. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I, I put them in, uh, in buckets of sand, but then it just, they had sprouts that came up about this high out of the bucket yeah. <laughs> and they were, wow. there wasn't much left of the potato at that point. Right. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, our you know our, our basement is a little bit humid. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's cool, so I don't I don't know why you know they're why they're still preserved pretty well. Yeah, I haven't really felt the felt the need to try a, a different way to preserve them. I guess I guess I'm just lucky there. Yeah, sounds like you've got the right uh, conditions down there. Yeah. Almost like a root cellar type thing. Yeah, I mean it's not as dry as I would like, but it is cool. It does it does stay pretty cool. We'll see as the weather starts warming up, you know, they might turn real quick when that happens. So we'll see. Sure. Uh, what's your biggest goal for 2023? Well, so uh, getting the, these, these meat chickens going, um, you know, I want to do the kind of the rotational grazing with the, with the chicken tractor. Um, so just kind of getting that going. Uh, I don't really have any other new plans. Like I, I kind of have a view that, you know, each season, you know, I'll try and introduce some kind of new process, right? Some kind of new complexity into the overall system. So, you know, I'll, you know, I'll probably expand the garden this year by a couple beds, right? But that's, you know, that's a, that's almost like 3,000 square feet. So that's that's already a lot of work. You know, I'll be planting, you know, another couple dozen trees or so. I think uh, one of my goals this year beyond the homestead is to like, we've already kind of started, I've, I've mentioned kind of doing these kind of work days with each other, you know, helping each other out on projects and, and just getting that going, you know, more actively, more substantially, mm-hmm. you know, bringing in more people um, right now, it's just a few of us, you know, but it, you know, my, my goal maybe in the next two or three years is I, you know, I, you know, I'd love to bring a lot of people in where there might be a few dozen of us you know, in, in the whole region in West North Carolina. And so kind of just getting in this kind of active community going or, or really trying to jumpstart that uh, is, is probably my other goal for this, for this year, besides the, just the homestead stuff. Great. That sounds good. Yeah. My main thing is I, I have a lot of um, fixing up to do. The deer got over the fence. Right. I need to replace a bunch of fence. They, I planted two snow white blackberry. And mm. they were thorny and they took over the back pasture and I have to figure out how to get rid of them. I, I dug them up once and that just made them mad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah. now it's a thicket. So I have to figure out how to get back there and get that, get that out of there. Do you, uh, with your fencing, do you kind of fence like one big fence, your whole area, or do you fence kind of individual trees and things? Usually I fence just one big area, but then they figured out how to get over the fence. So yeah. I'm going to have to uh, also enclose the trees. Uh, in permaculture, like there's, you know, the interest in like food forests and these tree gills and stuff. But, you know, having to fence, especially when you have to fence individual trees, I feel like that's just such a it's such a drag. Right. Because it, it makes it more difficult to think about, 
you know, all of the companion plants because then you have to work around the fence and, and sure. things. Um, yeah, I haven't even tried to like fence around the whole the whole property because we just have like different areas where we have trees spread out and it would just, you know, the amount of fencing that would take would be kind of obscene. And so I've, I've gone so far with just kind of fencing individual trees after not fencing them well enough and having a few of them be decimated by, by deer. I, th- I feel like fencing is like one of the biggest kind of drags of, <laughs> of the whole thing. Yeah. The main thing was I had a real successful little mini corn part of my garden and mm. they figured that out and then they kept coming back <laughs> Yeah, and then right. they decimated the rest of the garden. So, you know, it was uh, someone to have to do some fence repair. Yeah, they haven't come after my our garden yet. I mean, we have fence around it, but it's not very tall. We've had like rabbits get in and eat the strawberries, but we haven't. And I, I did see a deer in our in like a at a cover crop last last year around this time. We saw it like like standing there, like eating it. But we've been lucky, I guess. They haven't gone in like the peak growing season and decimated anything. I, I don't know if I should like. I don't know if I should expect to be that lucky in the future. I might learn the hard way. Do they go after any particular crops or do they just go after everything? Uh, well, they started going after just the corn. I had some popcorn and I had some of some blue corn yeah. and then they hit that and then they came back and then they hit the beans. Final thoughts. Well, I appreciate, I appreciate you inviting me on and yes. sounds like both of our missions, you know, and our projects are, are pretty aligned. And so yeah, enjoy this conversation and hopefully we can keep in touch uh, in the future online and wherever else. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Thrive in the Future podcast. So Thrivers, Thrive in the Future podcast is now over one year old. We've created new content every week for 65 plus episodes with conversations that you don't hear on other podcasts. After one year, the podcast only has a few reviews on iTunes, so the result is, unfortunately, that the algorithm will essentially bury or ignore Thrive in the Future in the search results. So, we're having a contest. Please subscribe to the podcast in your fave podcast app. Go over to Apple iTunes podcast app and leave a five-star review. It has to be on iTunes. And then go to thriveinthefuture.com slash contest We are having a drawing in February for Roxanne Ahern's Holistic Homesteading book and alternatively a Amazon gift card. Go to thriveinthefuture.com slash contest and submit your email for the drawing. The drawing will be on February 26th for the copy of Roxanne Ahern's Holistic Homesteading book. Alternatively, there is a Amazon gift card. Join the contest. Thank you. Next time on Thrive in the Future Podcast. In the upcoming weeks for Thrive in the Future Podcast, these are the topics we're going to be talking about. Um, Are you a trader or are you a gambler? And also, my friend Dave and I break out our med kits and first aid kits and compare and lessons learned from that. That's coming up on Thrive in the Future Podcast in the next few weeks.